0: Welcome to Raising a Beautiful Mind, the podcast where we have real conversations about youth mental health to empower families and transform systems. With guest, Dr. Nikki Finn, a mental and relational health advocate. All right, hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode. This week, we have Dr. Nikki Finn with us, uh, a passionate child mental and relational health education advocate, and crafting inclusive and relationally safe spaces where children can learn, live, work, and play. She has been in the field for over 20 years with kids, her writing, she's self-published, she does social-emotional consulting, she provides restorative and transition services, and she's a mom of child with diverse abilities. And hopefully somewhere in there, Nikki, you sleep too, right? Somewhere. Somewhere. (laughs) Why don't you tell us a little bit about your title of child mental and relational health education advocate. It's not one you hear all the time. Tell us a little bit about that. What does that mean.
1: Well, in my work with schools, I started working in schools, by the way, in child nutrition services. So I was an ultimate lunch lady. I supervised school cafeterias and really found that there were a lot of mental health needs going unmet because um, I wrote grants for kids as part of my work in child nutrition, school nutrition services um, for um, child wellness, for them to have fresh fruits and vegetables every day. And I found that a lot of kids were coming to school hungry and then of course a lot of the parents or adults or teachers would be like well school nutrition is not feeding them well and there's a lot of sugar and the lunches are horrible and then it got me thinking I'm like but really, like I, I was like that, I think, too, in the beginning because I have my culinary certificate and loved food and Scratch made my son's baby food, all that stuff, and the whole nine yards. And so mm-hmm. I could see their point, but also in seeing some of the kids struggling with attendance issues or testing issues, behavioral issues, it all came down to food and safety. And to me, the intersection in that was, um, mental health and also Mm -hmm. education. So like there, there was interconnecting dots, um, Mm -hmm. that was just like, okay, I got to do something like how, Mm -hmm. what, what can I, you know, like, what can I offer to these, Mm -hmm. these students? So I would do things like, um, cater, uh, family dinners, free family dinners with fruits and vegetables in them, have fruit baskets at the office for kids who came in. And then I found after about, I don't know, four years of doing this this kind of work, that my impact on students was somewhat limited in being in child nutrition. And so I thought, What else can I do to really serve um, students? Because I was seeing myself in some of these kids. Like I was raised where I was, I felt unheard. I felt unseen. I felt invisible. You know, I was the oldest of eight. I was told, give your toy to your sibling because you're the oldest. And I was just like, that's bogus. You know, like, why do I have to sacrifice this toy, this thing that I really wanted? You know, I didn't think it was much of an ask, but it was. I It was up to me to make everything else okay. And I see a lot of that in school systems. And so I went on, got my doctorate in education leadership, and that coupled with my master's degree in public health worked beautifully to work in relationships and behavior and so that's where relational health comes in and that's kind of where it um I guess what it has to do with social emotional learning because you have the social aspects of relationships you have the emotional aspect of relationships and it's all about how we relate to things, how we relate to things that happen, how we relate to our traumas, how we relate to our experiences, our education, our teachers, the adult around us, and most of all, how we relate to ourselves. Ooh, Yes. And so the health educator in me was just like... Behavior change, behavior change is individual, not one size fits all. And then I see all these cookie cutter methods of social, emotional learning being done or curriculums being done. And we have to do this to the masses when everybody's trauma and how it manifests or everybody's needs and how they manifest don't look the same. You know, yeah. we don't all start education at the same point, Yeah, you know, and so how could I, like, dig into that a little bit? And so I really found a home in working with kids in um, in school suspension, after school suspension, after school programs, um, teen court, um, uh, I guess, uh, penalties, <laughs> kind of desire programs. And I loved it. Because I could relate to these kids because a lot of them that were being sent to me were misunderstood, mm-hmm. um, just didn't have any fault of their own except for having a diverse ability. Because many kids with diverse abilities are misunderstood and being penalized just mm-hmm. for having a normal reaction to an abnormal situation, mm. you know, and that's how I felt you know, going through my life and, and reflecting back on not my young adult years, but also my, my childhood years.
0: Yeah. So you've said so many good things. Let's talk about when you say diverse abilities, what does that mean to you? Well,
1: a lot of people might say disabilities okay. um, for, for, um, you know, just cause I think it's longstanding mm-hmm. <laughs> disabilities and How that looks. I like to say it as diverse abilities because at the crux of it, we all have different needs and people can call them disabilities, but I call them diverse abilities because that's where our power lies, right? In the uniqueness, in the individuality. That we have, and it's not something to be limited by. But yet, I see so many people um, using the term disability as something limiting, as something negative, as something that could, you know, kind of, uh, I guess, perpetuate learned helplessness, right? And disempowerment. And so I just decided I'm not going to use that term. <laughs> I think everybody has different needs. And that's OK. And I think, too, that the term disability, I mean, just from my experience in working with schools, it seems that has come from those disabilities that are visible. Somebody in a wheelchair, somebody that, you know, um, has missing missing limbs or, you know, however you might want to um, phrase that or categorize that. But what about the kids that have invisible disabilities or those those ones that are not readily apparent and what i call invisible trouble and so i'm seeing a lot of that is the kids that have this invisible trouble i'm seeing really smart kids get in trouble i'm seeing hyper responsible kids get in trouble i'm seeing people pleasing kids get in trouble um, perfectionists get in trouble and it's i think it's it could be because they're, they understand how to get through the loopholes of the system to make it work for them. Because I mean, think about it in school, you're praised for what? Showing up. That's all you got to do. And you're praised for getting a good grade and attendance is a, is an award, right? So that's all, that's all I got to do. And why would I choose something different if I want to fit in? If I don't want to be picked on by the teacher or my classmates. And so if, if I don't have any friends and the people around me that I idolize or want to be friends with, they're smoking and drinking and, um, getting into fights. And that's how I see them use their power. I'm going to do the same thing because I want to fit in.
0: Yeah. So, so you're seeing
1: this self-abandonment happening and I see it in kids with diverse abilities or, you know, like people say with disabilities.
0: Yeah. So I have so many questions I want to ask you. Okay. <laughs> so you mentioned before, and you started to talk about this now too, about kids' behaviors being reactions to situations and there's a lot of complexity, right? So I, when I'm working with families, I would say the number one thing I hear from families and schools that they're struggling with are challenging behaviors. I, I would be interested if that's what you see in here too. And what does that look like when you start to unpack it? You know, I mean, there's so much you can talk about right now. I'm asking like 50 questions into one, really. No, but talk, talk about the challenging behavior piece, because- what I'm hearing from you is you look at it with a really um, in-depth lens and that there's more that lies beneath the surface when it comes to behaviors. Are you, is that what you're seeing too with schools and families behaviors?
1: That's what I'm saying. It's time to get out the magnifying glass. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because what challenging behaviors looks like to other people don't look like challenging behaviors to me. Mm -hmm. Um, They look like normal responses to somebody that might have um uh adhd or ptsd like okay let's say for example let me give you an example um in the classroom you have rows of seating and oftentimes people will kids will go in the back of the rows and they all want to sit in the back if a teacher says everybody come up to the front you know there's no sitting in the back you're now threatening somebody's safety if they have ptsd They're sitting in the back because they're looking, they're always trying to be, they're hyper vigilant and always looking for a way to escape Mm -hmm. a situation. But if you don't know that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and if you're just Mm -hmm. doing, sometimes people say it's a challenging behavior because it doesn't match what the teacher wants. Mm -hmm. or what the adult wants Mm -hmm. right the good children are the ones who listen who are quiet who don't cause problems Mm -hmm. but that's where that invisible trauma lies or that invisible trouble lies because they've been taught to kind of keep it in Mm -hmm. but you know and so then take then take hoodies okay hoodies are a big Mm -hmm. one for me Mm -hmm. because schools don't like kids to wear hoodies Mm -hmm. thing is is that with kids with PTSD, low self-esteem, low confidence, mm-hmm. that's their invisibility cloak.
0: Mm-hmm. And now you're
1: threatening their safety when you won't let them put their hoodies on.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and you and just said it a on. second ago, the good kids for, isn't that interesting that we chain um, meaning and we attach labels good and bad. Right. And I hear you saying like, we need to dig deeper than that. Right.
1: There's a lot of root causes and that's what I get at with relational education. So I'm all about roots, um, uh, realignment and relationships. Mm -hmm. So that's what I look at, you know, Um, in reflecting on my own life. I know a lot of the things I accepted in my life is what I was taught to accept. Right. Mm -hmm. So we get what we tolerate. Mm -hmm. If we have if we learn to tolerate people pleasing or um, bad relationships or people shaming us because maybe we're being bullied at school um, by either an adult or a child, then that is a thing on our mental health. Right. Mm Mm -hmm. And where I see a lot of the intersection in mental health and education, because a lot of people will tell me they're totally different. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I beg to differ because Mm -hmm. because school in social and relationship kind of settings, like the social organism is a school. Right. And we have such an opportunity to work on the relational well-being of our students. This is why conflicts happen Mm -hmm. because there's none of this Mm -hmm. like conflict conflict resolution restorative justice approaches can be great but social emotional and relational well-being has to happen first why okay because you have to have the um let's just take a fifth grader might not understand their behavior whatsoever but they're getting penalized for it well let's say in sixth grade they enter into the social emotional learning um uh, skill class or work with me um, to some degree, they they start to learn about mm-hmm. why they're behaving that way. That's social emotional learning. That's like creating self-awareness. That's like giving mm-hmm. language so they can have a voice to say, this is why I do this.
0: Yeah. And I would and even it's like, okay. right. And I would even like take it a step beyond that is that one of the things I think as adults, that we, the biggest false assumptions that we go with is that, kids and adults just will figure it out, that they'll just know the skills to be successful. And when I'm working with adults and they'll say to me, but in my day, we didn't need that and we turned out fine. And I say, "Mm, let's turn on the news tonight. How many adults do we see behaving well to really say, yeah, we all turned out fine. Employability skills, you know, they 92% of uh, employee CEOs were um, surveyed and 92% of them said they wish that their employees would come in with stronger soft skills, which are really those social emotional learning skills, how self awareness, how to relate to others problem solving communication, coping skills, stress management. And when we don't explicitly teach those, like you're saying, we no, don't, no. we miss the opportunity to build a strong foundation so that young people can then also become adults that have emotional regulation, that know how to navigate stressful situations. And I think we see the consequences not having that every time we flip on the news or drive down rush hour traffic and people are flipping each other off as they drive, right? Right. And
1: you're talking about, in essence, the relational skills that I do when I work with kids in transition. So a Mm -hmm. lot of the times, that's my other point, is that um, these kids most of the time are getting in trouble because they haven't had the right support in transitions, Mm -hmm. like going from middle school to high school, elementary school to middle school. That's a lot to deal with. Now, if you have a child that has moved across country or, you know, then you're adding something else. Um, I've even seen and work with kids that have had, like, I just know of kids that have had sexual abuse. Mm. That's huge. That's mm. huge barrier to get in the way of learning and success and everything. And to escape it or numb out, of course, that child is very well likely to have an eating disorder, to say yes to addiction, to not have boundaries. <laughs> You know what I mean? And so that is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. But when we just say they were smoking in the bathroom and we write them up and do our disciplinary form and suspend them, is it giving them a chance? Well, are we giving and, a chance to the relationship?
0: Right. And that's also a skill deficit, right? If we don't teach coping, if we don't make sure that mental health is addressed and those basic needs are addressed, young people, adults will find ways to cope, whether it's with booze, sex, self-harm, gambling, all sorts of behavior. We might not like behavior, but it's a form of communication when we have nothing else or we don't. Well, right. But really
1: the happen. thing is, it's, and I didn't mean to cut you off.
0: So. No, you're good. Keep um, going. Um,
1: the thing is, is that what we say to kids and what they see us do Mm -hmm. two different things most of the time think about those think about those that you know we can want the child to change or to make different choices but if we're not making them and they don't see a role model for how that happens Mm -hmm. I mean is that you're going to be a broken record and then you're going to come and complain to me because that's what parents do they come and complain to me because they're a broken record and their child won't listen I'm like well they just you just basically saw, said what the problem is. You're still telling them.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: have to do something different. You yes. cannot just sit there and tell them. So who is the problem?
0: It's not right, the problem. right. What do That's they right. say? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and over and over a again. Result? But the thing
1: is, is that see, there's a lot of comfort in that, right? Because mm. it excuses adults. From taking the accountability they mm-hmm. need to take to say, hmm, that's what I said that I told them I don't want them to drink. But yet, like last year, there was a, a child who told me that his mom broke their foot because she was so drunk, she fell off a, into a creek or something. And I'm just like, is this what we need to do? Yeah. But yeah, it's like so socially acceptable. And also, mm-hmm. um, I think that. Drinking and making sort of impulsive choices sometimes is traditional.
0: It is. And when we talk about mental it's health. Of young, right. And when we talk about mental health of young people and we talk about social emotional learning of young people and we talk about emotional intelligence or EQ of young people. You're right. We have to also talk about it for adults. One of the best books I have read was Dr. Mark Brackett's Permission to Feel. He's out of the Yale uh, Emotional Center for Emotional Intelligence. And as I was reading that book, I was like, damn, like I have a long way to go on my own EQ because there were so many pieces that I was like, I didn't know that. I didn't think about that. I never connected those dots. And I think as adults that were never also taught those pieces, we have to now be catching up and training ourselves in order to adequately help kids because you can't teach kids if you're deficit and your own EQ. And
1: this is a beautiful segment to talk about Um, catching up. You said adults mm-hmm. need to catch up. So, mm-hmm. so many times I hear especially with covid and covid reentry issues and coming back from mm-hmm. school to covid like i mean let's say covid still existing right mm-hmm. um but yet they say kids need to catch up and i just said kids don't need to catch up they're not ready mm-hmm. and and if you're if the teachers aren't ready to deal with you know, these changing dynamics or trauma dynamics or mental health um, dynamics, relational dynamics, Yeah, they're going to keep doing the same thing. Yeah. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so it's funny how you use the word catch up with adults when I always hear about the catch up needs to happen mm-hmm. on part of the students, but mm-hmm. where is the adult accountability in that?
0: Yeah. Right. I agree. I agree yeah so when we talk about social emotional learning, that has become a very controversial topic. And I didn't realize that it would ever become a a, a controversial topic until a few years ago. there started to be articles and there is there's a a growing movement that's chaining social emotional learning to making kids be gay or critical race theory or all sorts of other really bizarre things that, you know, I've spent my career becoming, you know, um, as knowledgeable as I can about all of these pieces. And I've never heard in any, any circles, any of those things you know, people trying to do those things when it comes to SEL. But I'm curious, what's your take on the the SEL controversy? How do you feel about that?
1: Well, I think it's another attempt at power and control um, mm-hmm. to not give student voice. Um, okay. You can say that it's, you know, it's about um, identity. Well, think about the dismantling of identities kids have had from people pleasing or perfectionism or abandoning themselves to um, listen to what parents say or making them go to school when they really have a lot of anxiety around it because of safety issues, you know what I mean? And so um, I think in a lot of ways, social emotional learning is an empowerment model, is an empowerment Mm -hmm. approach to giving people voice and choice. Mm -hmm. right to what they will and will not tolerate what they will and will not be okay with and coming into their own identity. I know as somebody who implicitly had my identity dismantled and I see other kids around who do the same thing because people pleasing is a survival mechanism. There's trauma presence, you mm-hmm. know, there is um this feeling of safety from doing it. There's this comfort that is gonna work out and then it becomes a pattern and it becomes a habit. Mm-hmm. Um social emotional learning is giving people the language I think to know what is going on, you know, and it, and it, and it affects not just today, but like, like you said, with jobs, college readiness. I mean, a lot of kids are dropping out of college, not doing well in college either, you know, just the same as jobs because they don't know what they want. They haven't had a chance to experiment what they want. And that social emotional learning allows an experimentation lab, right? It allows you to come as you are. It allows you to say, yeah, I'm this way. Yeah, I'm not that way. You know, and so a lot of times I hear, well, kids always have to do what they don't want to do. It's just a part of life. True. It is a part of life. However, um, does that mean that we don't listen to what their needs are and try to mean them? you know, match them? Does that mean that we um, don't show up emotionally and validate that yeah, this situation sucks or, Mm -hmm. you know, or do we just put them in counseling and put them, you know, let the counselor handle it because we don't know what to do, you know? And, Mm -hmm. and and so we have to look at so many of the moving parts and why, why are people against it? What? So I know from my own healing experience and Mm -hmm. in my own recovery from trauma Mm -hmm. that, um, People do what they get a racket, a payoff to do. So they cause mm-hmm. a racket, but there's always a payoff, mm-hmm. you know? And so like, if you're looking at somebody who likes to blame, mm-hmm. the, that's a racket, right? The blame creates drama. Mm-hmm. When you have somebody communicate your needs for you, that's triangulation that creates mm-hmm. drama, but both of those excuse that person from looking at themselves. Mm-hmm. That's a payoff. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times what troubles people, they're getting a payoff from, from that, you know, they're giving, you know, like when I first learned to set boundaries, yeah. people got pissed off. Yeah, They didn't want to deal with me anymore. I okay. shed a lot of friends and yeah. people got mad because it, it was working for them that yeah. I didn't have boundaries.
0: Right. Right.
1: And I think that that could be the same for social emotional learning. And that's also a reason why a lot of times people are more receptive to relational education or relational, mm-hmm. you know, because it's about relationships. But then yet, I mean, none of these concepts are um, real simple, right? Mm-hmm. They have layers on layers of oh. layers.
0: Yeah. and layers
1: and so it's hard to just be like hey dig into yeah. my layers and I'm the layer girl you know like yeah let's let's I'm, work with this but it's I'm, all about the relationship that we have around us what is it about the relationship you have with social emotional learning that turns you against it
0: yeah oh I love that what is the relationship you have with SEL that turns you against it that's or- the question. Or what in and with that relationship, what do you really know about it? Because I think that's one of the right. things that there's misinformation. And it's really easy, especially in the advent of social media, for me to create a narrative about any term and whether it's true or not, because of social media, I can hijack something and perpetuate it. and we we live in a world that and this continues to I continue to to try to understand how we got to this place and where we're going with it, where grounding things in fact and evidence, we have somehow even created a question with that. You know, the sky's blue. No, it's not. It's really orange. You all just think it's blue. And then people who go out down that that rabbit hole, that's hard for me. And I'm still struggling with, with understanding that because um, I think when it comes to SEL, there's a lot of narratives but there's one that's really grounded in evidence and science and research. And so for me to talk about anything but that, I struggle with that. You know, what do, how do you?
1: Yeah, do you yeah. That? I mean, I'm with you. I understand because there's so many times I think people see the problem and they just end up seeing me as the problem because I'm the one who's bringing this knowledge to them that they don't want to face. You know, or I'm the one that is threatening their way of being what they found acceptable and comfortable and my authenticity I've had to accept is threatening, Mm. you know, my want for change can be threatening.
0: Yeah, because
1: I mean you look at trauma that's traditional because it's been passed down from family to family to family for decades Mm -hmm. so it's like acceptable to deal with you know you can't turn on a tv show I don't feel like (laughs) without seeing somebody drinking their problems Mm -hmm. you know and and so you have to look at some of the marketing around it some of what's um been framed as acceptable and not acceptable but really it's those critical self um inquiry kind of questions like why do I have a problem with this and I've had to do the same thing I've walked in many rooms and I'm like oh my gosh they don't even want to know and be on my level that there's a problem yeah. And, and if they know that it's a problem, they want to do what they've always done to do it. And, and people like, well, it's so much time to do social emotional learning or it's so much time. I'm like, well, how much time is it for you to keep writing discipline forms? Aren't mm-hmm. you tired of grounding your kid? Aren't you tired mm-hmm. of like, saying the same thing? And I'm like, isn't that fine? Right. You know, so right. how are you choosing what are your choices and how you spend your time and that's a lot of what I do in some of the presentations that I do for um, schools is um, choice making and looking mm-hmm. at the power of the in between choices because so mm-hmm. many people look at the black and white, the this mm-hmm. or that the binary thinking yeah. it's right or wrong it's yes or no and that's where a lot of relational issues exist because we're not looking for that mighty middle. You know, yeah. those other choices that are not visible, but could be visible if we dared look at ourselves.
0: Wow. One of the things that you talked about earlier, and it goes with this too, is about safety, identity, traumas. You know, and I think you do this in some of your advocacy too, is whether it's as parents or systems, we have to be careful because we can also create traumatic situations for young people as much as they can create them for us too. How do you, what do you say to parents, to systems? How do you help them navigate that to be aware of it, to prevent it? And you mentioned some of it when we talk about in the education world, multi-tiered systems of support, when we put in the tier one, when we Put in high levels of prevention, we can reduce the amount of behaviors, the things that require more intensive response. What does that look like when you're working with parents and schools?
1: Well, um, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I think that, um, well, my approach is different for different people in different situations. Of course, sure. I think that goes without saying, but, um, I. I will test things out, like looking at where and how teachers set boundaries or how adults around them set boundaries. And a lot of times I'm finding that adults around like whether they're parents or teachers or other caregivers, they think it's their job to save kids and um, even with disabilities. And so there's a type of martyrship in that. You know, and that martyrship is like, I know what's best. I know what's better. I've done this, and this mm-hmm. is what works for all these other kids. So, this right, is what them. worked for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there's a martyrship that comes with that. And then, two, I think that um, I've seen schools cross boundaries multiple times mm-hmm. and abuse their power, like in custody cases, for instance, because mm-hmm. kids look different during the school day than they do at home. Mm-hmm. You know, they know what's acceptable at school mm-hmm. and what's not, you know, mm-hmm. and if it's acceptable that they're people please, of course, they're not going to show mm-hmm. any problems. Yeah,
0: right. You know what
1: I mean? And so if you're only looking at your part of the world and you're seeing, well, guess what? Seeing, you're seeing is only your perception because mm-hmm. what lens are you using to see? Mm-hmm. you know and and also what about all this other so like I always hear you know well perception is reality I'm like no your perception is your reality but that's Mm -hmm. not the reality that's actually happening unless we're going to work together and collaborate you know I've um had school systems before where they adopted a restorative justice um Uh, kind of program and for people to come in and I asked them to work with me and the school uh, principal called them and was just like no you're not doing that and I'm just like you just got this grant for restorative justice is that to make you look good why where's the teeth and they didn't want to do
0: they got the grant but they didn't want to do restorative justice so what did they want to do they weren't gonna do it they weren't gonna do it they weren't going to do it. So then why did um, get the grant? <laughs> why spend all that I don't know, time? but I've seen
1: that. I've seen that happen a lot. You know, I've gotten a grant for another school system for $75,000 for a big health program and they send the money back, you know, <laughs> so, because who got the position they didn't like. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but this is the thing. I'm not trying to downplay schools and I'm not trying to, to like downplay adults, but These are things that happen when we don't look at ourselves and Mm -hmm. we want to question, is this really important? Yeah. What is it that I'm doing that is perpetuating this situation? What can make this better at what point? And to me, I find that it's pain. The more like people have a tipping point. And to me um, it was pain, you know, Mm -hmm. it has to cause enough pain Mm -hmm. to throw money about it. Or to do something different. It has to solve a problem, right? Yeah. And it's not a big deal. I'm not, you know, people are not necessarily going to want to solve the problem mm-hmm. if it's always worked for them for one reason or another to mm-hmm. like send a discipline form or whatever. And I've learned too with this martyrship, um, it allows people to shame others. And then they feel better about themselves because Mm -hmm. when people shame others, they feel better about themselves. It's a judgment. It's a judgment. And also that is a lot of trauma that comes a a lot of it from trauma and family dysfunction.
0: Right. You know, and I think you just started to talk about this a few minutes ago that I want to make sure that we don't go down a negative rabbit hole when it comes to adults Because when we look at the needs of students, we also have to look at the needs of adults, whether it's educators and families, because, and one of the things that I think we talk about the least, I'm not a huge fan of the term self-care because I believe that it's a really commercialized term and people feel like I just take a bath and I light a candle and I'm good. And I think it's, I think it's more than that. And part of self-care and part of if I'm going to work in a classroom and part of parenting is when we show up to the table, if we have our own traumas, if we have our own stressors, if we have our own mental health issues, if we have not learned stress and coping skills, if we do not have self-efficacy because we have too much work and not enough Um, you know, support to get it done well and high expectations, and we've never been trained with high needs kids. It's a recipe for disaster. And to me, that is self-care, right? So when you're working with educators and you're working with parents, how do you help them navigate and uplift them? Because I imagine you're working with a ton of educators and families that are trying to you know we're all on a journey right like i feel like i call myself sometimes my my nickname is the professional train wreck because we we don't wear signs that say like i'm dealing with the same shit you all are dealing with right and you and i are both parents of of kids that have some neurodiversity and so we've walked that walk too of trying to balance it all so how do you, how does that look when you're working with adults? What do you tell them? What do you do for them? Well, one of the things
1: that I've done, like, uh, let me say, I think it was a couple of years ago, a family had um, consulted with me um, to work with their child. They were having a lot of issues in the classroom and mainly running away, which we call elopement. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out the child had PTSD and um you know there there were some relational needs not being met. So one of the things that I did was of course I worked one on one with the child and um you know I have my own lived experience with PTSD so I don't try to hide behind you know like just say oh I did this education I did this license so you have to listen to me I actually have lived experience so I was just like okay this is my ball game like I can this is my wheelhouse I can do something here and so um I worked with them uh for I think after three sessions or well each session um I would do like homework with them I would observe some things that were going on um that I saw and then I would do a um I would give them all free um teacher parent write ups like about what I was seeing what worked what okay. didn't etc cetera, etc cetera and um I basically because seeing is believing right Mm -hmm. so I so I showed them what was going on you know like what was happening so they could discern what they wanted to do and so how that looked like with this one particular child like they had a problem with worksheets. A lot of kids have a problem with worksheets. I have a problem with worksheets, you know, um, if I'm going down to it, but that's not the way a lot of kids learn. And that's Mm -hmm. not a lot of ways to create meaning in the learning. Right. And especially with kids with newer diverse needs, Mm -hmm. they don't learn that way. And forcing them to learn that way is basically telling them that their way is wrong.
0: Right. Who likes worksheets? Like, Neurodiverse or not, like who don't? I
1: don't don't even, and they don't even need homework because they have a lot to deal with. They need to be doing Mm -hmm. social emotional learning after school hours. Mm -hmm. Um. So, anyways, I would work with them, show them different, you know, different ways. And I was very student centered, so I just let students kind of like show me like where they're at, you know, and then we come up with an idea, a plan, and um. Then after like three sessions, the kids got the one-on-one care they needed in the schools. And I didn't know the parent was showing, was sharing my write-ups with teachers, but she was. And so at that point, that child ended up, it was a blessing. It was such a miracle. Mm -hmm. Ended up um, having a leadership role in the kindergarten class. They were a third grader. And so I was just like, well, you know, a lot of times with neurodiverse kids, they need to be given a chance to lead.
0: Yeah, purpose. And and
1: mm-hmm. all and so the kindergarten teacher found a way for the child to lead during the school day, which created meaning, right? Yeah. So they didn't want to run away anymore. Because mm-hmm. they had meaning. They mm-hmm. had meaning. They were able to reignite that. Mm-hmm. Um and find some importance, some value. For being at school and, um, yeah. So then the kindergarten teacher, which was so cool. Um, I was doing a conference for a trauma informed community in this one system, and, uh, she said, "I want you to come talk to my kindergarten class." And so she was seeing it. You know, it was like the presentations. It's like sharing the work that I'm doing with the students. Um, I also do like kind of it's it's almost like a needs assessment, mm-hmm. um. But it's based off of their, you know, what I'm observing and what I'm Mm -hmm. seeing and what I know from what they tell me. And then I'll develop a sheet about how they might need to ask for help, what supports they might need, Mm -hmm. you know, and then the teacher can laminate that. And use it in the classroom. Now, some kids don't wow. want to ask for help. So mm-hmm. some kids are embarrassed to ask for help, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's weak to ask for help in mm-hmm. some settings. I right. or like in some mm-hmm. homes, like that's the message they get. Mm-hmm. But if they have this laminated sheet right here that I've done for them, mm-hmm. the teacher can walk by their desk and the kid can point to something on the sheet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Those visual cues are so wonderful, especially when you're trying to navigate all the emotional overload in your brain. Well, you can't just
1: ask people to ask for help. Think about mm-hmm. think about um if there was ever a time you struggled for asking for help. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy as somebody is saying, well, for me it wasn't as easy as somebody being like ask for help. Right. Well, I've been turned down before. Right. <laughs> like right. I've been well, I've been told you can help yourself.
0: Right. I've been right. told all
1: kinds of things and I'm just right. like so that's going to get in the way of me asking for help.
0: Well, and there's a lot of executive functioning that goes into that and there's a lot of processing. So if you have a racing brain or you have any And you're an adolescent, so our brains start developing at the back, they go to the front, and you're halfway in the middle somewhere, and we expect these well-oiled machines. That's not neurotypical development for an adolescent or a child to then be able to go, you know, right now, I think I should go blah, blah, blah. And for some of our kids, they can. But for a lot of our kids, that's a high-risk activity to then go, You know, I have to process that I'm feeling this way. I have Mm. to remember that I have to do this. And then I have to go verbalize this to somebody. Mm. It's a lot of steps. It really is.
1: It is. And people don't understand like how many steps it is for a child to get there. You can't just say my door is always open. Right. You know, but then have a tone with it. Mm, You know, they read the tone. They read Mm -hmm. in between the lines, you know, not everybody Mm -hmm. is literal. And what you say again and how you behave different. Yeah. You know, so where's that level of trust? So our actions have to match our words. Yeah. You know, we have and even I have to I have to go back every day and make sure that my actions match my words. So that is a you know, do I have anything to be done? and I do that on a daily basis yeah. with my interactions? If they haven't gone the way that I thought they would have gone or something happened, I was like, hmm, you know, is there an action step I can take here to you know, do something different or do something better. Is there an apology I need to make? Is there, you know, this and that. But what I'm finding too, is that a lot of times adults are impatient Mm -hmm. for students to get, like, if you're, if a child is working on an addition problem and it's three Mm -hmm. plus three, it's glaring to the adult that Mm -hmm. the answer is six, right? Mm -hmm. So they're impatient when the child's sitting there going, so then they're giving them the answers. Because it's easier to give them the answers. And then when the kids come to me and I'm making them think on their own, they're like, you're not helping me. And I'm like, oh, helping is doing it for you? Helping me, helping you is giving you the answers. I'm like, you know the answers. I'm helping you find out how you know you know the answers.
0: Right. Well, and I think you bring up a good point too, is that this goes back to this, um, whose narrative is it? So I come in with my experience as an adult, but for a young person, if I say you know, and I've had to really try to get this out of my vocabulary with my own children and then the youth that I work with saying it's easy just because something is easy for me. It is so devaluing for a person that it's not easy for to hear that and expect that. Well, why am I not getting it? Why am I? And then we start to get the self-worth stuff. I'm not good enough. I'm not fast enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not whatever enough. Right. And there's that. (laughs) it's a wounding, right? It's a wounding that they take and carry with them
1: the rest of their lives, you know? And I see a lot of students operate for the, I'm not good enough because they internalize those comments, as shame. Yeah. You know, just like with, with my, with my parents or adults around me or teachers or um, intimate partners or whatever, they might not have given a lick of thought to how they said things to me, but, but I learned that that all like, buried inside of me and traded my spirit and and I was just like oh my gosh I have to resolve some of these issues that that people have said even when it doesn't seem like a big deal to you it doesn't mean that it's not a big deal to other people
0: I'm glad you brought up shame I think one of the things that was the most heartbreaking for me as a parent and as a professional and I, I wouldn't say it's a day that I realized it, but there was definitely a turning point for me when I felt like I was hit by a truck and how I made sense of behavior. And I felt like all of these behaviors, just being disrespectful, you're just being a jerk, you're just doing this to piss me off. And then all of a sudden I got hit by a truck <laughs> and realized it through some really um, hard situations that that's not what it was. So I had been, I was the adult making meaning based on a young person's experience based on my own experiences. And then I learned that those behaviors, as you've said, many a times have a lot of layers and they were rooted in something else. And the other piece, and you just mentioned it, that went along with that was learning how much guilt and shame this young person had been holding. Like I might get emotional now because as a parent, when I learned that and I had been operating for years thinking this young person is just trying to be difficult, my heart shattered into a thousand pieces because not only was that child not trying to be difficult, but for years that child had been working their tail off trying to get it right. And after me and countless other adults said things like it's too it's easy or, you know, whatever, that guilt and shame that cup was so full of it and that guilt that then I felt as a parent as a professional and the shame do you see that with young people that you're working with do you see that with parents is it just me I you know? see that
1: everywhere I see okay. it in teachers I see it in classrooms I see it in administrators I see it in um parents and kids um especially those that get in trouble, and. Um, that reminds me, you asked me a bit ago about how do I make, like, parents see or, kid, you know, teachers see, like, what do I do with these systems? One very simple thing that I try to um, do is, you know, I, well, I start small. So should is a very shaming word. So anytime we say I should do this, we're shaming mm-hmm. somebody or you should do that. Mm-hmm. So I tell I, I tell teachers that they want to see some of a difference mm-hmm. um, or to see how hard it is for some of these kids to change. Like we expect these kids to change. But we don't expect ourselves to change, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, don't you remember learning? Don't you remember doing something different and having to do that it takes time. Right. And so your timeline is not my timeline. So I say, why don't you go a week? And if you really want to be brave, do 30 days mm-hmm. and replace your should with could. To these students,
0: mm. and replace the should
1: with could to yourself.
0: I love that. Well, and it's ooh, and it's right because it isn't. it just about the students. It's about ourselves too, right? You right. Know, and you, you can't say
1: mm-hmm. right. And you and you don't. So a lot of times in education systems or in in adult child interactions or just adult adult interactions, right? I see it in workplaces too. It's not mm-hmm. just. where, Mm -hmm. you know, if, um, if we just say, don't do that, Mm -hmm. well, it's not giving them a replacement behavior. Mm -hmm. What do I do? Mm -hmm. You know, you can't just say, don't do this. You have to give them something to do.
0: Yes. You know, So when you say replacement behavior, that's what you mean. So you, instead of just telling them, don't go do that, you have to show them what, what to replace that you show them what to do behavior. you give
1: them choices about what to do mm-hmm. and but first that means that you have to take a beat and look at what am i okay with them doing yeah you know what i mean like in the classroom like what is that right yeah. what does that mean like i can give them choices but like for instance does math have to happen from 10 to 10 20 a.m and, and is that the 400 only 400 problems math can happen? <laughs> and is that the only time math can happen right like can we have some flexible scheduling Mm
0: -hmm. what would
1: that look like in your classroom
0: yeah what would
1: happen would you have less behavior problems if you change that one thing yeah it doesn't have to be a big thing it doesn't have to be like this whole grandiose thing but there again i think it's not big other people might think it's enormous yeah yeah You know, is that you have to really define, okay, if I'm going to do inclusive education, if I'm going to do social, emotional, or relational education in my classroom, what does that mean? What does that look like? I have to, you know, because teachers want something they can apply today. I just gave you something. Should we could. Flexible scheduling.
0: Right. But it requires me as an adult to challenge my own neural pathways, because for however many years I've been doing it the same way. And now exactly. you're telling me to do it differently. And that's going to cause it's like when I go to the gym, my body first pushes back and says, no, thank you. But I have to keep trying something. because I'm trying to rewire those neural pathways. And that might be that my math class has to be flexible to meet the needs of the kids, because it's more important to make the system fit the needs of the kids, not the kids to fit the needs of the system. Well, true, but also you have to
1: understand you're not married to that, like mm-hmm. in your own classroom. Mm-hmm. So like, wouldn't it be something if you could tell your principal you haven't had any referrals out of your class all year? Right. Wouldn't it be something to tell your parents that that this child was always great because you learned how to work with them? Right. You know, and everything. Right. And so you have to choose where do I want to spend my time and energy? And yeah. if you spend your time and energy, only the problem is, you will get more of the problem.
0: Yeah. That's if you spend
1: your time them. and energy on the choices and dabbling in some of the solutions or collaboration mm-hmm. that could lead us to a sustainable answer, mm-hmm. then maybe you'll get that.
0: Yeah. So you, you know, try- so you have
1: to think about what do you want.
0: Yes. So along those same lines, you're talking strategies. So if you could give, you know, I can't believe like our time is almost up here. If you could give a few strategies, let's say three, that are some of your biggest ones, whether it's for parents whether it's for educators, those working with kids and especially behaviors, we'll just stay on the behavior thing because that's probably the number one thing that we both see from folks. What would you give to them? What would you say? These three things, make sure you're doing these, you'll see a reduction in behavior.
1: Oh, sorry, I put you on the spot. Even if it's one or two. No, 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 let me me give you one for just self-reflection. Okay, okay. So if you do want to do this work and you do want to self-reflect as an educator or a parent, especially, okay. I challenge you to write down your fears for 30 days. And that's your journal. That's your journal heading. Fear about what? My fear. My fear. So like when you, when you are faced with a situation okay. that you're spiraling out of control or you're starting to get reactive, something really aggravates you, maybe as a student, a person, a situation, mm-hmm. I want you to write about what your fears are.
0: Love that. Because
1: a lot of times our fears hold us back. Mm -hmm. And then we have to figure out what would we do if that fear was taken away. Mm -hmm. Right? But we first have to realize we have that fear. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if a lot of parents or people realize when they have their fear and when they're reacting out of fear. Mm -hmm. So I would say that first all reflective purposes on an adult level, or if people want to do something reflective. Um, second of all, like for strategies in the classroom. I would say, please take down your charts and clip charts and extrinsic rewards um, like candy and um, stars and that kind of thing. Because it's also shaming because there are kids that go a whole entire year never getting a piece of candy or a star because you're not meeting them where they're at.
0: Well, in the public stuff where everybody else can see how I'm performing Ick.
1: exactly and then it creates this competition and mm-hmm. this people pleasing kind of stuff and then it still perpetuates this this shaming right mm-hmm. and um
0: yeah so, so very ableist because it, it very much you know if you have a disability and your brain is wired for neuro- neurodiversity and you're not able to perform it the way that others are it just lends itself to starts to bridge that divide even more right
1: exactly exactly and it, and it not only divides your relationship with the students but it divides students with potential friends because now their friends are labeling them as not smart or bad
0: yeah bad and same same with the
1: kids mm-hmm. same with the kids that are being taken out of the room and you're excluding and you're yelling at them and shaming them all day long they're not going to have a good chance of making friends because mm-hmm. their friends have labeled them the same way you have because that's okay. what they've seen you do
0: yeah no i agree any other
1: strategies you've given us two good ones um three I would say um if um I guess like something I would do I would really because I found a lot of um help in it is focus on your movement are you moving every day are you walking? I do 10,000 steps a day, four miles. And um, when I'm going through grief, um, and a lot of kids, by the way, are going through grief, but that's probably for another time, because that could be a whole another session in and of itself. But when there's grief, sorrow, sadness, anxiety, um, maybe depressive behaviors, or maybe you're just like, in um, you know, the wheels are always turning, you know, they're having a hard time getting clarity. I think I pretty much talked about everybody in those adjectives but work on something moving and you know whether it's moving heavy objects because that is very therapeutic for neurodiverse yeah and also um people in general because it helps get some of this aggression and this tense intensity in our bodies out so moving heavy objects is huge is huge Mm -hmm. for a lot of neurodiverse kiddos um but um because they want to show their power right in -hmm. some way so you need to give them an outlet to do that but walking helps me immensely, um, and oh. weights or trying something new, doing a group exercise mm-hmm. class. I did. If you read my blog last week, I did a uh, deep stretch class, and I was like, "What am I doing here?" But <laughs> I did. I had to lean into the discomfort of frog pose, and it was one of the best things I decided to do I for love myself. That. And And I was just like leaning into discomfort and frog pose. And I was just like, oh my gosh. And, and I was just thinking about like how my body is contracting and discontracting, but you know, and I guess that's a bonus one. Think about, slow down a minute and think about where you feel your feelings in your body
0: yeah well and you know movement is important because it helps us re-regulate our system and a lot of behaviors we see from young people or from anybody have to do with emotional dysregulation and so to trigger your parasympathetic nervous system to help relax and calm the body movement lifting things walking frog pose all those things are great you can do math and movement
1: you can do english and movement you can do social studies and movement. I when I when I teach in at the college level, I teach Gen Ed students, pre-service teachers, and I'm like, we're gonna do this. It's mm-hmm. integration. It's not about this time to this time. We do this. It's about integrating all of the skills. So mm-hmm. then that way we don't like turn off the learning after the bell rings, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we want that integration. That's what we want to go for. And so that's where health education, education, and mental health meet.
0: I love it. So if people want to get a hold of you, they want to talk to you more, they want to read your stuff, they want to learn more about what you do, how do you want them to to do that?
1: Um, I prefer LinkedIn as an initial contact. I do have a contact form embedded in my um, link in the bio. You can also see some of the Uh, publications and book consultings that I've done you can see a couple of case studies and get a little flavor about what I'm about and you can dm me through there through LinkedIn follow me you can also find me on medium Um, I just posted a new blog today it's about being brave and taking off my cloak of invisibility I love that so Yeah, especially for Halloween, when everybody else is putting on their clothes, I'm taking it off.
0: (laughs) I love that. That's so (laughs) important. Such a great topic. So you can go ahead and find Nikki Finn on LinkedIn. She has a ton of different links on her LinkedIn that you can go ahead and look at and follow. You can DM her. Nikki, it has been awesome being able to talk to you for this whole hour. You have such great strategy. Definitely check her out. Thanks again for coming. And I hope to be able to talk to you again soon because you are a wealth of knowledge. Thank you. Thanks for having me.